0: to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. I'm your host, Hope Bohannik, and you can find all our past shows and more information by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can find my contact information there as well. I would love to hear from you. So today we have a very special guest, the absolutely fabulous Jasmine Singer. I'm so excited to share this interview with you. We we covered a lot of ground for this one, and I'm just going to jump right into the interview. I usually have some thoughts here in the beginning, in the intro. It's, well, it's one of the reasons I started a podcast, because I have a lot to say. But for this one, we're just going to jump right in. I, I didn't, I really didn't want to cut anything out of this interview. I was so riveted with Jasmine the whole time. So I wanted to share this interview in its entirety with you. So we're going to be jumping right in very soon. I would like to remind everyone that this podcast is broadcast on VBN Radio, the vegan broadcast network online radio. They have an hour spot for this show twice a week. So go and check out the vegan broadcast network. They have great music, other social justice shows, and more. Okay, I hope you're ready. I'm ready. So let's get ready for some vegan royalty. Let's roll out the red carpet. Here we go. Okay, I am thrilled to introduce our guest today, Jasmine Singer is a worldwide leading expert on veganism, the co-host of the long-running Our Hen House podcast, a longtime love columnist and celebrity interviewer for Veg News Magazine, as well as the author and editor of numerous books. She's been featured on NPR and CNN and The Atlantic and Women's Health and the New York Daily News and now the Hope for the Animals podcast. (laughs) And Jasmine is a coveted speaker on topics including uh, radical body positivity, personal narrative as a means to social justice, and how to change the world for animals. Welcome to the podcast, Jasmine.
1: Hope, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yay. I'm so glad you're here too. And I want you to know right off the bat, I have to start with that. I am such a huge fan. I've been listening to our hen house over the years, and it was actually one of the inspirations to start my own podcast along with the bearded vegans, which I miss terribly. So Mm -hmm. I've been a big fan of your work for a long time, and I'm so grateful that you are here. Thank you for agreeing to be on.
1: Oh, well, of course. It absolutely thrills me to hear that. I'm a fan of yours as well. I too miss the bearded vegans. I'll, yes. start, that, I'll start that change.org petition to bring it back. Yes, and right. <laughs> also, how cool is it to have the name Hope and do the work that you do?
0: Oh, thank you. I know it worked out. It, it's actually my middle name. Uh, but oh. I just, I felt it so strongly when I was young that I wanted to start going by it. And as soon as I kind of had that ability to change my name, uh, in high school, college times, I changed it to hope. So,
1: well, it's a good name and I love, I love everything you're doing, not only with your podcast and your advocacy, but also really embodying what it means to have hope.
0: Oh, thank you. I'm trying. Ah. (laughs) Well, let's start with your vegan origin story. I, I love to start there because I, to me, all vegans are superheroes and you're certainly a superhero and all good superheroes have an origin story. So tell us about how and when you went vegan.
1: Thank you. I don't really feel like a superhero, but I'll wear that today since you- Please since do. Said put, I am.
0: <laughs> put, put on your cape. Absolutely. Right now. Okay.
1: All right. It's, <laughs> it's on. It's on. So yeah, I, I like you, I had a background in theater. I also, like you, we have a lot in common. I was a theater major in college. And so I was like this theater student who wore all black and smoked club cigarettes. And it was the <laughs> 90s. And, and I was, a, you know, so I figured- Being a vegetarian kind of went with that, and that was how I became a vegetarian, just like a very surface-level decision. And also, on some level, I felt like meat was icky, but I never Mm. thought about what was happening to the animals. I just thought, oh, meat, gross, you know? So I went vegetarian, and I used to introduce myself as a vegetarian, but not the mean kind, which I obviously think is hilarious now. (laughs) (laughs) I pretty much made my career uh, around being the mean kind, I guess. Well, no, I'm nice. Well, sometimes I'm nice. So after college, I got a job in theater working in AIDS awareness for like an AIDS awareness theater company. And therefore social justice and activism became not only part of my day job, but like embedded in my worldview. And as I was working in the theater company, I met a vegan. So in the days I was advocating for marginalized communities and I was a feminist and I cared deeply about, you know, what was happening to marginalized communities. And then during my break, I was eating cottage cheese, which is absolutely vile food, by the way. And, (laughs) and like, you know, yogurt, like when I was a vegetarian, all I ate were animal products, probably more so than when I was a meat eater. So this vegan I met, who you probably know, I'm sure you do, Marisa Miller-Wolfson, mm-hmm. who, of educated fame, yes. she and I became very good friends, and she showed me, I went to a screening of a film, of a documentary, Peaceful Kingdom, and I learned about what was happening to the female-bodied animals and the, the exploitation of the reproductive systems, and there was just no way I could continue to consume dairy and eggs. So I not only became a vegan then, but I like became a professional vegan. I was embedded in Marisa's community. Her Mm. boss at the time was the late Mary Max, And so Mary kind of took me under her wing and she sent me down to PETA. I was 24. So it was 18 years ago. And she sent me down to PETA and I was uh, volunteering. And then I came back up to New York City where I got a job for an animal rights group. And that was it. That was that that. Defined what the rest of my career and and worldview and life would look like. So that's pretty much the origin story in a nutshell.
0: Hmm, I love it. So you just you kind of embraced it right away uh, as soon as it as soon as it clicked, huh?
1: Yeah. Well, sure. I mean, once I learned that I was actively partaking in this extremely exploitative system that was harming so many groups of individuals that I considered you know, wonderful and sentient, and, and, and I, I couldn't be part of it anymore. I, I'm sure that your listeners can relate to that. So yeah. I jumped in and I was like, hey, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my life? But there was nothing I was more passionate about. It was like the light had suddenly turned on. And even when I look back at my old college days, when I went vegetarian, I think even though that girl was like a bit lost, She was on to something like that instinct (laughs) that meat is vile, that meat is icky, as I called it. It might have not been like rooted in a deep understanding of animal exploitation, but it was somehow rooted in something knowing that it was off and that I didn't want to be part of it.
0: Yeah. 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 So, So you've been a vegan advocate for a long time, a couple decades, and I'm wondering if the trajectory of your activism has has taken on what you envisioned like if it was what you thought might happen you have i mean really now you have kind of a media empire you are a fellow podcaster with our hen house you write for veg news magazine you've published numerous books and articles you have this uh, online newsletter, Jasmine's Jargon, and now uh, you did a few TV shows with Our Hen House with Marianne, and that's getting a second life now on Jane Unchained TV. Mm-hmm. So you are really just deep into the journalistic and media aspect of uh, of our movement. And I'm wondering if that's kind of what you thought was going to happen. Did you have journalistic tendencies going in, or did it all just kind of happen organically?
1: Oh, that is such a great question. I definitely had instincts that were around public speaking, and I, I don't think that I even knew what a podcast was. There were probably a few podcasts back then, but- Yeah, you,
0: know, you started really beginning. early, really early. Like how long yeah, ago- I had-
1: well, I start. We started our hen house. Uh, we're in our thirteenth year. Wow, but,
0: that's amazing. I love yes, it. But
1: but but when I went vegan, which was you know well before I started the podcast, you know I didn't really know what types of media were available. I think that the media landscape was changing. But right when I went vegan, I was set up with a meeting with Lantern Media Publishing and Martin Rose specifically. So. He met with me in his office in Union Square and I said, I'm interested in writing and I now know what's happening to animals. So how can I sort of bridge these two things? And he was like, you know, just write. He basically said, just start. There will always be a, a place for your work, for your articles. And so does it, does my career look like what I thought it would? I, you know, no, no. I I don't think so. I I think that I had no idea how the world would change to create space for DIY media, for independent media, for, for the way that the sort of grassroots movement at the time would evolve. And so my early days were in grassroots activism. I wound up working for Viva USA, which briefly existed. And then I was the campaigns manager for Farm Sanctuary where I was based in New York city and I ran the protests and the tabling events and the leafletings and, you know, my bedroom in my tiny little 350 square foot apartment was also where I kept all of the leaflets. So I was like going to sleep, <laughs> staring at this shelf that has, you know, say no to this, say no to that <laughs> like yeah. in front of me. Uh, and I feel very lucky that I was able to join forces with the, incredibly brilliant Marianne Sullivan and we were able to start our henhouse together to kind of create a media landscape that would focus on how to change the world for animals interviewing people who were similarly to what you're doing interviewing people who are creating these scalable replicable types of advocacy but from a variety of different mediums and so it's absolutely thrilling to, uh, to be in this place now. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I'm I'm so you know I guess impressed is the word with your work because of the mass amount that you've done, which is incredible, uh, and and the creative way that you've gone about it too. So, um, so really good work.
1: Well, thanks so much. Yeah, it's funny to look back and think, you know, when fetch news used to arrive, it was like the world stopped when I got it in the mailbox, and oh, I would start and, looking and- through it. Mm -hmm. And long ago,
0: it was just this, wasn't it kind of like black and white, a little newsletter? I remember getting that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it was so exciting because we didn't, I mean, I feel like, (laughs) I feel like I'm aging us a lot right now, but we didn't have everything that's available now. Right. So when when it would arrive, it was like, okay, everyone stop talking to me. I'm going to go read (laughs) this front to back. And the I, you know, I thought maybe one day I could be in this. And then my first article in Veg News was this tiny little like one third page profile on someone. And it was like, I felt like I had made it, you know, (laughs) that was what I wanted.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I love it. I I love, love, love talking to longtime vegans because we, we really get how much has changed. I don't think the younger people really know, you know, I Mm -hmm. mean, they hear our stories and sometimes I, I feel like a grandma because I'm like, you know, I mean, instead of the, well, we had to walk for miles in the <laughs> snow for us, it's, you know, well, we had nothing to eat, but boiled cauliflower <laughs> and there were no cookies and we veg- had to New-
1: reconstitute our soy milk,
0: right? <laughs> it was powdered soy milk right. and veg news magazine was just a tiny little. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I
1: know. I feel exactly the same way. I really do. It's so but funny. Yeah. It's exciting though, to be able to look back and see all this changed so quickly.
0: Yes. Yeah, it really is. It's incredible how much has changed uh, in such a short period of time. Very, very hopeful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So earlier this year you posted on social media that it was the 6 year anniversary of your memoir Always Too Much and Never Enough and you were pondering how different you are now how much has changed and I can really relate because it's been 9 years since I wrote my book and I feel that too I feel some of the some of the views have some of my views have shifted things that are now kind of immortalized in that book have changed so can you tell us how you feel about this and, and what's changed for you?
1: Uh, <laughs> yes. well, writing a memoir just in general is a very weird experience. I actually have a very good friend, Rachel Kranz, who just published a memoir and I'm, I'm, you know, she, she's around the age that I was when mine came out. And I feel like I'm, looking back at myself in some ways as I see her kind of going through this process of her book being out there. It's like not just a story, but it's her entire life. It's like, you know, the most personal, intimate moments of her life. And I can relate to that. The whole time I was writing Always Too Much Never Enough, if I started to think about it from the perspective of the reader, I would get really freaked out. And so I had to just kind of look at it as this solitary experience and sort of separate myself from the fact that it's possible that other people are going to look at this and know this deeply personal stuff about how I dealt with food and how I dealt with my body and how I dealt with my mother you know like one of the most complex relationships in my life Hmm. and you know then the book comes out in my case I went on a book tour and I got to talk about it. I started to realize that other people taking in my story had very little to do with me at the end of the day. When people read memoirs, they're frequently sort of bouncing the ideas in the memoir off of themselves from their vantage point, thinking about their life and their experiences. And so I felt very honored to be able to be the vessel for people to think about maybe animals or food, or the way they show up in the world a little bit differently, but I I didn't think it was like about me at that point. And then life continues and the book exists and it ended at a certain moment in time. I was in my mid thirties at the time that my story ended, but obviously I continue on (laughs) and my life continues on. And, And so just like anyone listening to this looks back at their life and they think, oh, I have really changed in the last X amount of years. I not only have that story, but I have that story kind of memorialized in this <laughs> yeah. book. But I still had people and I'm like, you're probably not going to recognize me in a lot of ways. But, you know, enjoy the read. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's a weird thing. It's like a super weird thing. And I, I guess how have I changed? Well, I've grown. I went from, you know, when I finished, right. I wrote it, obviously, a couple years before it came out because that's the publishing industry. So I wrote it around 34, 35. I'm 42 now. And that's a big time. That's a lot of growth that someone goes through in that period of time. I've changed physically. I've changed geographically. I've changed my marriage. I'm in a different marriage now. uh, I definitely look at, you know, ambition and anxiety differently. I look at finances differently. And then of course, Some nuances in how I would describe myself and my journey and veganism have also shifted. But I, as a writer, I need to leave space for that evolution. The writers who I look up to all leave space for that evolution. They don't look back at their early work and think, that is completely representative of me now. I mean, who would want to read a book that is written by someone who hasn't shifted, who hasn't evolved?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how many lifetimes we live in a lifetime. I mean, it really is incredible to look back. Being older, you can look back on the decades and 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 see so much growth and change. Uh, so yeah, and I, I I often think about this though, like when I think about my book and 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 how my thinking has evolved and changed artists sometimes, you know, want to go back and change a piece of art. Like they're like, oh, I, I could do this or I could tweak this, but there's kind of this ethos of, well, no, don't, because that was, you know, that moment, that moment in time, it may not be what you think is best now or good now or whatever, but that is, you know, where you were, what it was and, and it's beautiful for that moment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's similar. When you were describing that with artists, it's funny because a lot of the hats I wear right now, I'm, I'm working with people who are much younger than me. And a, a lot of them know a whole lot more than I do about social media, for example. And there are all of these sort of best practices for when you post something on Instagram, for example, and something has shifted, do you go back and change it? And, and the answer is kind of like, n- not really, you can put an update in a caption. But it isn't really best practices to take it down because it it, it sort of changes the story. So hmm. I think that it's all very fascinating. Yeah,
0: definitely. Fascinating stuff. Anyway, well, let's, let's switch directions a little bit. I wanted to talk to you. I know that you've talked about how you came into the animal protection movement by way of the LGBTQ movement. And you talked a little about this in the beginning, how your beginnings were with more uh, social and human uh, social issues. I know that that overlap is important. Can you talk about this connection?
1: Yes. Yeah. Hope, thank you for asking me this. I, I bring myself into my activism, just like you bring yourself into yours. And I think that the most powerful activism it is rooted in the authenticity of the advocate. Yeah. So coming from a background of LGBTQ activism, coming from a background of AIDS awareness activism, I think has allowed me to look at animal protection issues from this vantage point of like o- overlapping mentalities around why we oppress certain groups and celebrate others, overlapping oppressions, overlapping ideologies about the world we want to live in. So I don't think that this would be exactly the same for everybody else who comes from an LGBTQ background. But for me personally, especially someone who cared so much about feminism so early on, when I started to see the non-human animal bodies as, you know, obviously just as sentient, just as important as the human bodies, it was like a dramatic shift. I had been in the middle of working on issues that involved pushing aside entire communities of people for the same exact reasons that humans push aside entire groups of animals. Hmm. Why? We are better than them. We can do whatever we want to them. God said so. Insert the blank. insert the blank excuse here, it's all the same reasons why we oppress certain groups of individuals and celebrate others. And so that was startling to me. Hmm. And it was even more startling when I recognized my role in continuing it. And this is actually an ongoing evolution as I continue to see the ways that I maybe unknowingly participate in oppressive systems. Uh, But as for the LGBTQ movement specifically, to me, I felt like the activists who were advocating for animals that I was drawn to the most were in the LGBTQ community because that was what reflected back at me. That was, those were the people I was called to emulate. Those were the people who I, who I kind of looked to in those early days of my veganism and they all cared deeply about all of those issues. We live in a world where not that long ago in both of our lifetimes, so maybe even in our adulthood, it was considered very normal to be homophobic. It was considered very normal to look at queer people with, with skepticism, to be uncomfortable around them. Certainly when I was growing up, you know, when I was like probably a senior in high school, Will and Grace came on TV. I don't know the exact year but I get graduated high school in 97. I think Will and Grace might've been on at that time. That was it. That was the first reflection <laughs> I ever had yeah. in my life of like queer people on TV. There was Rosie O'Donnell, but she wasn't out. There was the Ellen show, but she wasn't out. Mm. And so when Will and Grace came on, it was almost like, oh, okay, we can talk about these issues. And then now looking back at Will and Grace, obviously it was very much from one perspective of what it means to be queer from Mm. like a very white perspective like from a a male perspective and we have to ask ourselves why like why did we live in a world where it was where we were raised to be straight unless proven otherwise and how were we partaking in these exact same systems and then when we become vegan those same questions rattle around Mm. so to me there are like kind of ideological similarities but there are also very specific ones you know like uh, one of the first things I learned from Patrice Jones when I was writing my first article way back when that got published in Satya magazine was that AIDS which was my background in AIDS activism was you know known as the gay disease for a long time and then of course the cycle continues because for you know the of the vivisection of of nonhuman primates that we were we were trying to find a cure for for the AIDS virus by way of oppressing animals, so like these are cyclical issues, and unless we kind of get at the root of it not only in terms of our own behavior but in terms of our advocacy, then nothing's going to change
0: mm. yeah, so what I was thinking about when you were talking, you know, we were talking earlier about how far we've come with veganism and we've come so far with these issues too. Of course, there's still a long way to go. Absolutely. But but that's another really source of hope. I mean, we, and, and with like trans, trans issues and trans youth, I have been really trying to educate myself in the last five years or so, uh, on trans issues. And now I'm on some newsletters and, um, and have been reading and, and I, it's, it, it's really just so beautiful to see, to see those representations on, uh, in, in TV, on TV shows, uh, to hear more about it. And I just, I want to just put my arms around the trans community and just give them such a huge hug if they want it, you know, (laughs) because, uh, it's, uh, there's so much, um, hurt and pain there, uh, and oppression, but at the same time, it's so hopeful that we are seeing them now, uh, in so many ways.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, certainly within the LGBTQ realm, the by far most marginalized are Black trans community. I, it's what got me involved with some board work for the Newark LGBTQ Center, which actually came about by way of something I did that was vegan. I, I was doing a vegan workshop and someone had approached me afterwards and said that someone who they were related to had recently been found dead on the streets in Newark and they were, uh, the, the person was a black trans woman. And the, the person who had approached me said that she didn't feel like the police were doing their part. I was living in Los Angeles at the time. I am actually originally from New Jersey. So mm-hmm. I felt like, oh, maybe I kind of know the landscape a little bit. So I started calling around. I eventually reached the Newark LGBTQ center and I told them the story and they took on this campaign they made a lot of uh, news headlines, they were able to work within the Newark Police Department to get a proper investigation. And then eventually they asked me onto their board. And it's the connection there is never lost on me that like this, this came about because of veganism. Yeah. And, and, you know, some of these lines that we draw are are more direct than others. But Ultimately, yes, to me, to be vegan, to care about the animals is to do exactly what you just said you're doing, to constantly look at our behavior and how it's impacting others. And are there different ways that we can show up for marginalized communities while continuing to advocate for animals?
0: Yes, yes, yes. And along these lines, uh, going further with this, I would love to talk to you about this shift that we're seeing in the animal protection movement and the animal rights movement for more inclusion, more representation, more diversity. And you were the editor on a recent groundbreaking anthology called uh, Anti-Racism and Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation. And I I really love that we're seeing this shift. I mean, I feel like it's, it's, it's long overdue. It's so important would you like to tell us about this, this book, what got you inspired to do the project and, and anything more about that, this broader issue of uh, you know, more representation in our movement.
1: Yes. Yeah, thank you. I mean, this has definitely been, I come to this conversation with you right now with like a whole lot of humility and a whole lot of uh, questioning. Cause it is a journey I'm very much on. Yeah. I was Partaking in a few anti racism trainings that Encompass was leading, the incredible racial justice group Encompass that works specifically within farmed animal advocacy organizations. And during one of the trainings, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of people, it was on Zoom, it was one of the very first get togethers to turn virtual. It was like the very, very beginning of COVID. I think the call was made like, The same week, like, hey, we're going to be virtual, and we were all like, a virtual conference, like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) how does that work? And so, I remember sitting and looking at all of the little people in the Zoom boxes, and they all came from the farmed animal protection movement. Many of them were working in the institutional animal protection movement, like the bigger organizations and i'm and a lot of the people most of the people there were white not all of them and i'm sitting there listening to these stories of how they became aware of their compl- their our role being complacent working within systems that were rooted in white supremacy culture yeah. including the animal protection movement and 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 there were all of these wide-eyed people on the screen i was also wide-eyed like what can we do? And since personal narrative is a great passion of mine and helping, pe- helping people to, to tell their story, to find their truth. And I, I kind of put a little chat note in the chat box saying, we should all write essays. I'll, I'll edit it. <laughs> you know, not even realizing what I was saying. <laughs> and and, and it suddenly everyone's like, yeah, totally you know, two weeks later, Arianish Berdy, who's the executive director, reached out to me and said, are you serious? Like, can we? And so we started, we collaborated our hen house, which is my nonprofit, Encompass, which is Arianish's, and then the sentient media nonprofit where I'm uh, an advisor. We all collaborated. We worked with like around 16 people who were at that original anti-racism training and put together these essays. I worked with the, I worked with the writers uh, to help them sort of hone their stories and tell them in like a way, you know, that wasn't rooted in talking points, which I think a lot of activists are used to just kind of going into their talking points. But like, I was like, no, where are you in this? Like, what was your life like as a as a young person, as a young activist? Like, how did you connect these dots? And then brilliantly at the end, Ariana, along with the managing director at the time, who was Michelle Rojas-Soto, they would go into the document with the lens of anti-racism work. So I would get to see their comments, their their questions. You know, the essay itself was done at that point. And then me and the author, I'm like a front row seat to learning about all of these issues as I'm looking at the comments. So Senshi Media published them uh, throughout 2020 and a little into 2021. And then... Uh, Uh, That guy who I just mentioned, the wonderful Martin Rowe, who I met with all those years ago in Union Square, you know, uh, at his offices from Lantern Media, sent me an email and said, let's make it a book. Mm. And so we we did another edit of the essays uh, and we turned it into a book. And now it's a teaching tool for Encompass mainly. So I have been able to grow in this creative process with my own anti-racism, as well as sort of, like I said, having that front row seat into why farmed animal protection advocates, white ones in particular, like myself, have just not done enough as the leadership within organizations has primarily been white. Boards, philanthropists, you name it, has, has predominantly been white. Advocacy materials has predominantly been white. Why was that? And how do we change it drastically and immediately?
0: Yeah, fantastic. I will definitely put a link to that book in the show notes. Uh, And you know, I, I think that there's a lot of us vegans, white vegans, that and that are in the advocacy movement that are kind of like, well. What can I do? You know, i I'm, I'm, I'm already so spread thin. I'm, you know, there's nothing. What, what more could I do? And, you know, and, and I already, I already am. I'm, I'm not racist. Why do I have to worry about this? Right. I guess what I would say is educate yourself, read this book you know, um, that's what I have been trying to do is just, just listen, listen to podcasts, listen to people because there is a problem and, and, uh, we need to make changes. So yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, this is just going to be an ongoing evolution, but like, you know, how hope, you know, how you look at someone who might be an activist for not, not for non-human animals, but in another group, and you just think to yourself, "We've all thought it. Like, why can't you just be vegan too?" Right, like, just, right. So, like, you're just, all you have to do is not eat animals. Like, it's, <laughs> we're not asking you to do that. So, it actually feels something about this is resonating with me. And what you're saying regarding anti-racism, like, be an animal activist, do what you're doing, and make sure your leadership team at your organization is people of the global majority, make sure that you're diversifying your funding, make sure that you're supporting people of the global majority in your philanthropy, make sure that you're looking at your language and your content from the vantage point of, of inclusivity. Like all you have to do is start to listen and make these shifts and then we will have a completely different movement. We will have a movement that is actually rooted in compassion.
0: Yes, true compassion for all. Uh yeah, absolutely. And 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 like you were saying, there's so much overlap. Systematic oppression affects everybody. Uh animals, non-humans, uh, and humans. And uh and, and I, I love how you said that it's true. We look at other movements and say, well, why aren't you vegan? Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? They're looking at us like, well, <laughs> you know, you guys could step it up too. Uh right. there's lots that we can do to make our uh advocacy uh more social justice friendly. So yeah, yeah, I love exactly. that. Well, another topic that you embrace and share about that I think is really important to talk about is the perception of our bodies and weight in veganism and the vegan movement, fat phobia. I had uh, Andy Tabar on the podcast from the Bearded Vegans uh, last year. He was talking about this, and I think it's it's really important to address. And Health is important, and I know it's a huge aspect of our movement and many people you know are advocating really only for the health aspects but it often gets confused or conflated with skinny bodies and And, and we hear these lofty promises of weight loss and by going vegan, you know, you're going to lose all this weight. And, uh, and, and this can be really problematic in a number of ways. I mean, if we don't, if, if, if these promises aren't fulfilled, if people don't see these results, then they're likely going to go back to eating animal products. And it also, I think even worse alienates larger bodied people as not worthy or not healthy or not representing veganism properly, so I really would love to hear your, you know, a little about your experience with this issue. I know you've mm-hmm. talked about it, and and I'd love to hear what you have to say about this.
1: I, I kind of want to tell everyone listening to this to like pause the interview and then go listen to Andy. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I appreciate you asking me for my perspective and I guess I'll add the caveat that this is my perspective and you know that's what you asked so I definitely don't speak for everyone on this journey and and it's definitely an evolution for me too I think it's an evolution for everyone uh it is absolutely true I wrote an article recently for Veg News I Andy is one of the people I interviewed I love him uh I, it was just talking about exactly what you just said like so many of the bodies that are staring back at us in advocacy materials are are thin ones. And uh, that can certainly be very alienating. I read a book not that long ago that was pretty life-changing for me. I really, really recommend that your listeners read it. It's called What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat by Aubrey Gordon. Hmm. And it really gets in the weeds with like how anti-fat bias is killing people. And you know, this book is obviously not written with the vegan lens, but it is such an easy shift to look at it from a vegan lens. And that's why I repeatedly pitched this article to Veg News. We ran it in the magazine and then eventually also online. Uh, And it was, you know, I think great that Veg News went there because certainly Veg News has been also, reflecting those thin bodies in its pages. So it just kind of, you know, goes to show you, or as my wife would say, shows to go, yeah, that that, like we're all changing, including media companies and nonprofits and and the activists who run them. Uh, and then when we look at it from the perspective of veganism, then, you know, similarly to how we kind of need to ask ourselves, especially as white activists, like, how have we been partaking in a system that is rooted in white supremacy culture? How have we also been partaking in a system that is rooted in thin privilege, and is discriminatory toward larger bodies, like, you know, the kind of uh, skinny bitch mentality, the yeah. kind of like, <laughs> This is what a vegan looks like. Well, not really. I mean, not really. (laughs) Like, it's not what I know. A lot of vegans, and I have met thousands of vegans, and and I would venture to guess that you know, it's not what mainstream media describes as what a quote unquote vegan looks like. So, it has been a journey for me on a very deeply personal level. It's been a journey for me, you know, as I realize these issues, my own body size, my whole life has gone up and down. And I sort of think that's just what it's going to be a body that goes up and down. A lot of why my first book sold was because there was a moment where I had lost a lot of weight, which happened to happen almost unintentionally. (laughs) It was when I was dealing with some of my own issues. And, and as a result, my body became smaller and I wrote an article for uh mind body greens that went viral, like very, very viral, a hundred thousand shares in like less than 24 hours. And mm. it was about how losing weight taught me how the world treats larger people. Mm. And it really struck a chord with a lot of people with like heavier people who feel like that, with uh, thin people who don't know that that's how they what they've been doing it was a lot of microaggressions like when I had lost a lot of weight people would start holding doors for me asking me how my day was these were little tiny things that had not happened to me before wow in the like 10 minutes when I happened to be thin I got a book deal which is another example of thin privilege um and I never in the book advocate for thinness but because it was published by a major publisher, by Penguin, uh, you know, a a imprint of Penguin. It it was put in the book, like how I had lost the weight. And that was what the headlines were, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, in my opinion, a very tiny part of what my story was about. And I never talked about how people should be thinner. But I, that was sort of inherently a part of the a a part of the book because it was part of my story and it's like probably five percent of the whole book but that that's you know hearkening back to your original question about or one of your original questions about like what is it like to have a memoir out there yeah it's weird because since then I've gained a whole lot of weight I lost a whole lot of weight I don't even really think about it I don't get on the scale I just know that I have kind of like changing circumstances in my life when I went through a divorce. I think I was, you know, going through a lot of things that I wound up changing in so many ways, emotionally, physically, in other ways. And then at some point my habits, my lifestyle changed in other ways that resulted in my body changing again. And it's so secondary to me now that the book that I really wanted to publish last year, which never got picked up by a publisher was called what I gained and it was about like basically telling a skinny chasing society to like F off and <laughs> how my, you know, becoming a person in my forties really changed my relationship with my body. And I started to just absolutely love my body at all its sizes while recognizing that this is very triggering for a lot of people. Hmm. So Yeah, I guess that's sort of my long winded answer. It's a complicated
0: (laughs) one. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you said in there something about what a vegan looks like. Like, we think that a skinny person is what a vegan looks like. And to me, what a vegan looks like is the whole world. Like everybody, we want the whole world to be vegan and the whole world is multiple sizes and colors and, and you know, and, and everything that the, the beautiful diversity of the world. So that's what a vegan looks like. Uh, and it shouldn't be just one thing. Um, and yeah. So,
1: Yeah. I, exactly I and I'm not you know this this topic as a whole it makes me really sad because you know there is a really small passionate group of people who talk about this and care about this but in general I I'm not seeing a lot of shifts yeah uh I think anti-fat bias is very baked in to our mindset to how we we exist in the world I see a lot of people being self-deprecating i don't think they necessarily make the connection that like if they're self-deprecating towards themselves it actually impacts the person near them mm. they think oh this is just about me if you're in a group of people and one person is talking about their body thinking they're just talking about themselves it actually can be really damaging to someone else who's listening and it also underscores our anti-fat bias in the world so it's, it's something i'm very sad about
0: Yeah. I, I hear that. And, and I also, it, it makes me sad that it's still so prevalent in the movement. And we, I, you know, I still get emails that are like, you know, learn how to lose weight, go vegan.
1: Oh yeah. And,
0: you know, and, and, and I, and I, I, I guess I understand where that's coming from. And, and for a lot of even the plant-based vegans, they are doing it for the animals. I think they think that, you know, well, we want to help the animals and this is a way that people will come in This is a way to get them in. But there's like, we've been talking about a deeper mm, problematic issue, a deeper damage that can be done with that.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think that there are ways of messaging everything that we want to message about veganism without being fat phobic. And as people will learn when they read Aubrey Gordon's book, what we don't talk about when we talk about fat, a body size is really not necessarily an indication of their health. And I bet that that sentence that I just said is bringing up a lot of things for a lot of people listening to this right now. And I would say, check that if it, if you just disagreed with me or if you were skeptical, like think about it. All I'm saying is think about it because it is, you know, it is not necessarily an indication of health and therefore vegan equals skinny is not, is not an effective or compassionate messaging within our movement.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, maybe an anthology on this issue or some kind of book on this issue. I mean, you're right that it needs to be talked about more in the movement. So, uh,
1: Yeah. I thought about that too. I, you know, I'm glad to hear you say that because it's kind of brushing that I, you know, dusting that off for me, that idea. Cause I do think that we need to be talking about this a lot more than we are.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good. So to, to switch directions a little bit, you and Marianne on our hen house recently talked about a study from farm forward about humane labeling. And Farm Forward, I'll just say, is not—they're not an animal rights or animal liberation organization. They are more animal welfare. But they did this really interesting study, and they found that that uh, among people that purchase humanely labeled meat every month, around forty percent incorrectly believe that all products sold under really the best of the best labeling, like humane, uh, the American Certified Humane, and One Health Certified come from pasture-raised animals, and also that 40% thought that eggs from cage-free hens guaranteed that the hens were continuously outdoors and have outdoor access. And that, of course, we know is not the case. Uh, Cage-free certainly doesn't mean outdoor or cruelty free so the humane hoax of course is a, a very important topic to me that's what my my book was about and we just actually had our Humane hoax online conference earlier this year so I wanted to know your thoughts on the issue of humane washing
1: I'm so intimidated answering this question to you <laughs> <laughs> well, oh people I appreciate it I'm glad you brought this up yeah I mean I that study it also, as my wife would say, she chose to go, yeah, that <laughs> like, you know, we're right. And we've been saying this forever. So I guess I choose to have hope in this, though. And I think that the fact that Farm Forward, not an animal rights, not a vegan group came out with this to me is an indication of something very positive. Mm. Uh I also we all as vegans, especially longtime vegans, we develop coping mechanisms for how we exist in the world. And one of mine is that I have to believe that people are inherently good. Like I I have to. Yeah. And maybe, maybe I'm proven wrong every time I, you know, turn on the news or whatever. <laughs> but I have to believe that they are and that we all come from complex circumstances and that there are so many factors keeping us. A sleep, when it comes to animal issues, but when people think that they're making choices that are aligned with their worldview of compassion to all, including animals, which I think most most people I know would say, even if they're not vegan, when they think they're making choices in alignment, and then these studies come out, I feel like, okay, so then they're going to be people who, once it's available, will be buying cultivated meat. Like I, I have to believe that choices will continue to evolve that will be more in alignment with their with their worldview. So obviously, I think that humane, um, you know, giant air quotes here that humane labeling is oh, horrid. I mean, like it's horrid. It's elite. It's empty. It's rooted in illusion, delusion. It, it's not anything that's Sustainable. it is inherently cruel and inhumane to animals. It, it it perpetuates systems that are absolutely rooted in continuing to oppress groups behind closed doors, like individuals who have families and social systems and they care and they they experience fear. And this is completely not. In any of the marketing material, the only thing in the marketing material is that you're making a choice to treat animals better. When, of course, people listening to this know it's not possible. You can't treat animals better while you're killing them. It isn't possible, no matter what label you pop on it. So hopefully people will start to evolve to recognize that.
0: Yeah, and I I agree with you that actually this whole thing, even though I speak out so strongly against it, just as you did this, the humane labeling though, I do feel that it is hopeful. I understand where you started with that because we are admitting that animals suffer and that these horrible things are happening to them so that we need to change the system. I mean, we're admitting all of that, which I think is a great first step towards the ultimate, uh, you know, realization that you cannot, like you said, you can't farm these animals in any way that can be humane. So I agree with you that it is hopeful because it's that first step of just admitting that these animals feel they are sentient and that we need to, something needs to change. And I think ultimately what's going to be realized is that the change has to be vegan. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And again, we opt in to the hope. We choose to see these behaviors that feel so horrid as maybe a sign that that person who's buying that humane labeling product cares. Like maybe they are capable of... I have to opt in to hope. If I didn't, I wouldn't be on this podcast with you. I wouldn't (laughs) be vegan. Because there was no other option, you know. Once you learn what's happening, you can't unlearn it. But I wouldn't have devoted my life to advocating for animals unless I felt like I could do something about it. The only way I feel I could do something about it is to be hopeful, to choose hope. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I want to talk to you about something that I think is really interesting not, uh, vegan related, but I guess vegan related, uh, kind of taking veganism to the next level. You and your partner more recently moved and you're working towards making your house net zero. And for, first of all, if you can explain what that means <laughs> and, and what steps you've taken to make your home more eco-friendly. So what's net zero and how is that, how has that journey been?
1: Yes. So thanks for asking me. I do think this is related to my veganism, but I agree. It's like a kind of different level, different layer. Uh, I, I would say more is so much better at explaining it than me. But net zero is basically a system that negates the amount of greenhouse gases produced by human activity, in this case, my house. So it means that my house is not, you know, run on gas or oil. It is creating the same systems that it's using, thus netting zero global, Mm. you know, emissions. Yeah. So that's what net zero means. Another way of putting it for people who might not be that familiar, if you're driving around and you see a house that has solar panels on it, the house might not be net zero, but like that is one way of sort of getting towards net zero. And that is one of like several things that we did. So, I lived in New York City for oh 17 years, and then I moved to California, first Northern California, and then down to Los Angeles. During COVID, at the very beginning, Moore and I were living in a one-bedroom apartment in West Hollywood. Her job became remote, and it just suddenly became evident that like we needed to move because we were suddenly both working from home. We have four animals; it just wasn't working, and we were paying a lot of money and rent because we lived in the middle of this very bustling neighborhood neighborhood as it were and we we've always wanted to live in a net zero home we just thought it would happen after she retired so we we looked at the New York Times climate change map which I'm like pretty I'm, I'm like a, a do miss <laughs> you know like I think climate change is well like probably a lot of people listening to this I think it's just absolutely terrifying and and I I don't have Human children, So I didn't like need to stay in an area because my kids were in school or whatever, uh, which I realized makes it a lot more flexible. And now suddenly we were both working from home, which also made everything a lot more flexible for us. And I looked at the New York Times climate change map and I studied like what are the most vulnerable areas. And what are the safer areas in terms Mm. of long-term climate change projections? So in terms of like, how do I avoid tornadoes? How do I avoid tsunamis? How do I avoid, you know, massive uh, wildfires? Fires, exactly. I mean, literally while we were driving out of Los Angeles, the fires were blazing behind us. By the time we got to Colorado, we were rerouted because of the fires there. It was like in this, uh, Uh. you know, dystopian existence, but it was real life. Yeah. Um, so we studied the map and we realized that, like upstate, like very, very far upstate New York, and like northern Vermont, that area of the country is one of the safer places. And after looking around in Vermont, we realized that we couldn't really afford it based on what was available, and we wound up in Rochester, New York, it was an interesting place because of the fact that you could call it a climate refuge city. It doesn't have projections of these extreme weather conditions, except for cool. flooding. Wow. Um, yeah. And then you're on the lake, you're at Lake Ontario. So if you're not near the ocean, it really changes the atmosphere, the geography. And so we wound up buying an 100-year-old house. It's very difficult to afford houses, but the Rochester housing market is significantly cheaper than in a lot of places. So we were able to buy a 100-year-old house, small house, and we put in geothermal, which basically means that we're heating and cooling the house by way of the earth. So you're digging these holes in your backyard and connecting it to your your heating and cooling systems. And we put on solar panels, we insulated the house, which is extremely important. If people want to do one thing to- Wait, I'm
0: I'm so so sorry. I have to go back to the geothermal thing.
1: Okay.
0: uh, (laughs) So you dig down holes, and is it- from the heat of the core of the earth or what How? I need a little yeah. more. I just, want I'm curious. I want a little more explanation. What? Yeah. What?
1: Okay. So exactly. <laughs> you, you dig holes like a few hundred feet down. You have to dig multiple holes in your backyard. There are geothermal companies obviously that do this for you. Right, this drill. Right. You're not sitting there with a shovel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's basically the thermal energy in the earth's crust. And that can both heat and cool. Wow! So you know, as I am recording this, it's it's a cold wintry day, but it's very comfortable in my house because you you connect it to the heating and cooling system of your house.
0: Ah, okay, okay.
1: Yeah, I, that okay, was my you. that was my layperson way of explaining it. So if, if I got more, she she would get on this interview and just start nerding out and explaining every single <laughs> aspect of this. But it basically is a way of eco-optimizing the heating and cooling system so that you're not using harmful greenhouse gas emission, you know, structures that okay. most people use.
0: That's great. OK, thank you. You can- Yeah,
1: oh. absolutely. So I would say if people <laughs> if people are listening to this and they want to do one thing. The most important thing that I've learned is insulating your house. So, uh, because especially if you have an old house, like we had, it's called a blow test. And someone comes in and they basically blow a significant amount of air throughout your house to see where the weak spots are. And a lot was coming through. It was a very inefficient house. This is like related to the windows Hmm. mostly, but also when you have old houses that are not insulated, you're going to lose a lot of heat. So we insulated the whole house, some of which was done from the outside. They basically take off like a little panel and blow in insulation. And then we also got triple pane windows. So probably you have double pane. Most most people have double pane, but triple pane windows adds a layer of protection. So before we got the triple pane windows, the house had like tw- it was 25% efficient and now it's 98% efficient. So it basically means you're creating a tight envelope in your house. So uh, you know we did a few other things as well. We one day would love to get an electric car. We, we can't afford it right now because all of this that we're, that I just described is we are looking into all of the incentives that we can get from the city, from the state, from the county. Uh, there are some incentives so you get rebates and it's all financed you know we, which is I realize because we're both working is a privilege that we have. We are by no means rich. We are very much middle class, which I also recognize as a great privilege, but um, we were able to make all of this work through a series of rebates and, and all of that. It shouldn't be so hard. Like everything I just described, it, it, it could sound very overwhelming to someone. And I, I just wish it wasn't so hard. So Moore and I really want to make this something that is accessible and affordable, if ideally free, for everyone, and that is one of my passions currently. So there were, yeah, there were other things that we did as well to the house, but those were kind of like the big ones.
0: Wow, wow, that's that's all really amazing and fascinating. And it's funny because the one thing that I have done of all the things you mentioned is I do have an electric car.
1: <laughs> oh, funny! You should come and move in, and we'll be <laughs> it's
0: the only thing I have done. But uh, yeah, my husband and I share one car, and that's and we've gotten down to that for ecological reasons. And we work, both work from home, of course. Right. So that makes it much easier. But yeah. And, and, and I do want to mention, and you did say this, but of course these things are, if a, if you own a home, which is a privilege in and of, in and of itself. Uh, and if you have the money and time for these kinds of things and, and not everyone does, of course, there are smaller things probably that you could do. Yeah, um,
1: absolutely. These yeah. are, I mean, the, this is, the number one thing that comes up when people ask me about this, I mean, I am in my 40s. I wouldn't have been able to afford a house more than her 50s. This is the first house she's owned and it was from like renting a really small studio in the back of a building, you know, like it was a lot of work to be yeah, able to get uh, here and yeah. and it was, it was a lot of frugality. But 100% mm-hmm. I recognize that these are giant privileges that I have and I also would love it if landlords were incentivized to make these eco changes they need to be incentivized financially to do this we lived in an apartment before this before we bought this house we were like in a place and we were looking around and we asked the landlord about it and he said no of course not like this is not anything that would make sense for him financially to make any of these changes so and you're right there are definitely just like with veganism we can't let perfect be the enemy of the good right it would be easy to listen to the things I'm saying and roll your eyes and be like oh, yeah right I can barely I can barely pay my rent each month and I totally get that I yeah. I've I have been in that position most of most of my life and in in some ways also have a couple privilege to be in a joint income. Right. But there are definitely little things we can do, just like what you just described, moving to one car, which we also have one car. We try and walk whenever possible because we're in a city now. We have bikes that we try to take when it's not snowy and icy out. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. like, the question isn't well. I could never do that. The question is, well, what, what what can, can you do? Can I do?
0: Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Um, and and I I love that. I love that you're taking the time and spending the money and doing this work because. It's inspiring. It makes me want to do more. Uh, I hope it makes the listeners want to do what, whatever they can because veganism, It's it, it like you said, it is connected to your veganism because when we protect the planet, we're protecting animals. We're protecting the beautiful wild animals of this planet that for no fault of their own are suffering horribly because of all that we do environmentally. So it certainly is connected to veganism.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree.
0: Well, Jasmine, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. We'll put we'll put a bunch of links in the show notes to ways that people can get a hold of you and experience your uh, media and your activism. Do you have any final thoughts or any uh, way that people can reach out to you?
1: Absolutely, people can follow our henhouse by looking online at our henhouse <laughs> and listening wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can reach me directly at info at jasmine.singer.com. There's no e on Jasmine, so it's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R. And on Instagram, which I'm pretty active on, it's Jasmine Singer Author. And I just also want to thank you so much. Hope I hope that your listeners understand the value of conversations like these and and as i know from interviewing people as well like there are always parts of interviews that we agree with that resonate there are parts that make us think differently and there are parts we disagree with and that to me is the root of an important dialogue that we not only have by way of listening to podcasts like yours but also having conversations with people in our own communities about it so stay open-hearted and see where that takes you. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I absolutely adore your show.
0: Oh, thank you, Jasmine. It's been really wonderful having you. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. I had so much fun talking with Jasmine. She feels to me like a kindred spirit because We have a lot of parallels in our activism, our values and our beliefs within our activism, and I just admire her so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I also hope that you will support us in any way you can. Engage with us on social media. You can share posts about this episode from our Facebook page, our Instagram page, and we now have a Patreon page where you can join us with a small monthly donation that helps us continue and promote and grow and get this important community building podcast out far and wide. So please check out Hope for the Animals podcast on Patreon, and if you're listening on a podcast app, be sure to give us those five-star ratings. That helps us so much. Okay, I will be back later in the month with a special Earth Day episode, so until then, please take care of yourself, be compassionate, and live vegan.